Chance, um, he's here somewhere, man. Thank you for your honesty and just your vulnerability. And if, if that is not just a little sneak peek into not what's just happening in the young adult ministry, but we have seen stories of transformation consistently throughout this summer. And uh, man, it's one of the best parts about about getting to be involved in the church. Even if, if you were transformed by the gospel decades and decades ago, there's something about it never grows old hearing those stories about how the Lord radically transforms lives. And, and we have seen it happening in the young adult ministry, which I don't know if uh, you remember, but about a year ago, I transi- transitioned from these hooligans to these slightly more mature hooligans, slightly. Um, and we have seen the Lord do some unbelievable stuff. We launched a midweek service called The Collective, which has been an absolute blast. In June, we were across the street at Common Desk, right there at City Line. It's a co-working space. And we gathered there uh, for the Thursdays in June, brought in some different speakers, and just had some really fun conversations and dialogues. But one more thing I want to mention before I jump in is... Uh, you know, I think stories are one of the universal ways in which we as people relate, right? And it's kind of always been like that, you know, and, and whether the story meth or means is a, is a video or something you hear or something you read, stories connect with us, right? And I think that's true about stories of transformation and stories of the gospel. And I just want to give a, a shout out. He's going to hate that I'm doing this, but, uh, Ben Beasley, our videographer, he helps put these stories together every week that I promise you communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ as much as anyone that stands up here. And so it really is such a gift, yeah. And um, he's, he's probably going to send me five or six angry texts because that has not been Beasley to want to be acknowledged, but sorry, dude. Um, all right, so I have a question. How many of you were told as a kid that sugar will make you hyperactive? Yes. Yes. Okay, one. Me too, by the way. Uh, Gum will stay in your stomach for seven years. Yeah. Or what about cracking your knuckles will lead to arthritis? Or my personal favorite, if you pee in the pool, it will turn a different color. Well, I regret to inform you that if you were told any of those, you've been lied to. I, uh, I recently saw a Reader's Digest article, which I don't normally read. I don't know if that makes me sound weird. Uh, but it, it, it caught my attention. It was some good, uh, you know, Google clickbait marketing. Um, but it said 19 lies that you were told as a kid that you probably still believe today. And in fact, there's been numerous studies done and, and children's behavior is not affected by sugar, which I had to Google that because last night we got Wells ice cream and I was like having this like crisis of like, I think I'm gonna lie in my sermon. Sugar has to be impacting his behavior. I'm seeing it right before my eyes, but apparently it doesn't. Uh, gum does not stay in your stomach for seven years. Yale Scientific confirms that it might take slightly longer to digest, but seven days at most. There have been numerous studies done, including a one at Harvard in which shows there's no link between cracking your knuckles and arthritis. And then finally, for better or worse, there's no chemical that you can put in your pool that makes it turn a different color whenever you have a sort of guilty uh, tinkler, we'll say. Um, But 52% of people do believe that that does exist and is in pools. And so I'm perfectly fine if we just wanna keep it between ourselves that that's not a real thing um, and not tell anyone else. But while this is, uh, you know, in a humorous way, so to speak, in students, kids, 
you can still trust your parents, I promise you. But it does kind of bring to light the deeper question of like, how do we know what to believe anymore, right? And then if you wanna sort of take that question kind of to the next level, really what is truth, right? How do we define truth? And I think we've kind of entered this place in society where we're constantly bending and probably widening what we know and consider truth to be, and it's driving us deeper and deeper into sort of a culture and society that is increasingly more satisfied and okay with proclaiming and claiming that truth is simply just subjective. And in fact, in 2021, Barna Research suggests, or not suggests, concluded through their research that 54% of Americans now embrace a sort of postmodern idea in which truth is subjective and there are no moral absolutes. And so, with this sort of murky worldview in which 52% of the population says there's no moral absolutes, rejecting a baseline of truth, let's enter in to what John has to say this morning. And so verse one says, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And so right there off the bat, John is warning us that there are false messengers, there's a false message, there are false prophets, there are lies that are entering and polluting the world and the church in which we are in. And, And for the record, to claim something is false, you need a baseline of what? Truth, right? You only know what is false if you hold it up to the backdrop of what is true. And so from this point, a logical question would probably be, well, what is truth? And truth is one of those things where you, where you, you might not know how to define it. You know it when you hear it or if you experience it, but how do we define truth? And I think Dallas Willard, who's a Christian philosopher, guides us towards a helpful understanding of what is truth. And he says that truth reveals reality Reality is what we run into when we are wrong, and lies or falsehoods is unreality. And so this definition of truth being reality and truth being what we run into or reality being what we run into when we are wrong would suggest that there is a particular singular reality that is common to all of us. And in this reality, things are ordered in a particular way, in truth and in this reality, we also gain an understanding of what is right and what is wrong. And as followers of Christ, we believe in the absolute truth, the only reality being the kingdom of God. And we know this kingdom to be the way in which God has created and ordered things to work in a particular way that he has set forth, right? Ultimately, in his kingdom, God gets what God wants, right? And he has ordered the world to work that way, right? And of course, sin has created it to where it doesn't always work out that way. But it is also in this reality, in the reality of the kingdom of God, that we receive our purpose, we receive our hope, we receive our meaning for what life is. But what about the 54% who just reject this? Say, nope, no absolute truth, no moral baseline And what's happened is because of this, we've sort of opened the floodgates for this idea called moral relativism. Now, students, you gotta hear me on this. You might not have ever heard this term, but I promise it's running rampant 
throughout your middle schools and your high schools. But moral relativism, right, which is inevitably where we get whenever we reject all absolute truth, is the idea, as the name would suggest, that all morals are simply relative to the unique individual, right? It can probably best be understood in terms like to each his own, to each her own, or who am I to judge, or even something like just follow your heart and do what you think and what your heart says is right. Moral relativism ultimately suggests that you are the creator of your own reality. And because of that, you have been bestowed the power to define truth as you wish, to define what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil, what is helpful, what is hurtful. You have that power to be your own personal little creator. And what's interesting is while I do think some of this terminology might be a little new, I think this idea of us being tempted to be our own personal little creators of our own reality is really not new at all. And in fact, if you look at John 8, we find Jesus in his most in-depth sort of lengthy intellectual conversation about the devil, right? And it, and it says in John 8, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so in this lengthy, most in-depth teaching on the evil one, Jesus spends almost the entire sort of discourse talking about how the enemy is a liar, calling him the father of lies, even saying that his native tongue, his native language is lying. And look, does the Bible clearly talk about demonic possessions and some supernatural paranormal activity things? Yeah, and since the Bible talks about them, do I think they can happen? Absolutely. But since this is what Jesus is spending so much time talking about when talking about Satan, I have to think that the primary strategy of the evil one is to convince you of personal lies that distract you from the truth and the reality of God's kingdom, right? And not just personal lies, but also systemic lies that inevitably plague our entire society. That is Satan's strategy, right? And can anyone argue that that is Satan's oldest trick in the book? To help or to convince you that you are the God of your own reality, that you can determine right from wrong, that you have the power to do whatever makes you feel good and brings you pleasure and to have your entire world revolve around whatever is self-gratifying. That's the oldest lie of the enemy. And so it's with that that John finds us this morning at this pivotal junction of living between the lies of the false reality from the enemy and the truth of the reality of the kingdom of God. Or really, it's the epitome of what it means to be human, right? And I think the human condition can be best summed up in this. My shoulder angel. Don't listen to that guy. He's trying to lead you down the path of righteousness. I'm gonna lead you down the path that rocks. I'll come off it. You come off it. You. 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 
right? And so that's, that was Emperor's uh, New Groove. I don't know if that's maybe too old for you guys. No? Okay, good. Brilliant movie. I'm sorry. Sorry. Wow. I was wrong. I apologize. Trace will buy you all free pizza for like the next month because of my mistake. All right. And so though, but it, sincerely, what I, what I mean by, by that is, I mean, that's where we're at this morning. That is where we live and walk every day at some point in our life. We inevitably feel like the sort of emperor with the devil and the angel on his shoulder living in between the lies of the enemy and the truths of the kingdom of God. And so that is why John is pleading with us. We have to know how to define and distill and really refine what is truth in a world that is plagued with lies. Or as John says, to know how to test the spirits and see if they are from God. And so this is how we do this. Verse two says, this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And so John tells us that we recognize the spirit of God through our acknowledgement of Jesus and the things that he has done. And in the reality of the kingdom of God, the baseline for truth is that Jesus became flesh. That is to say, Jesus is incarnate. He is God. He put on human flesh and he was born unto a virgin Mary, Merry Christmas, right? And it's, it's in, in this reality, right, that all truth flows forth from the place that God sent his son to live amongst his people. That's the baseline. That's the foundational truth of what it means to exist in the reality of the kingdom of God. And we know that when God sent his son, Jesus, he lived a perfect life. He was murdered, crucified on a cross to fulfill the wrath of God, to satisfy the wrath of God, which had to be satisfied because God is perfectly fair and also loving. And then Jesus rose again three days later and provided a restored relationship with us and the Father. And that's the foundational truth of the incarnation and the foundational truth of the reality of the kingdom. But it's also in this truth and acknowledgement of the incarnation that we also find how love works in God's order, right? And I love this quote. It says that love is the act of yielding the good of one, of one another ahead of yourself, no matter the cross, cost. Excuse me. Or as John 15, 13 says, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friend. And so love and the reality and the truth of God is modeled as a son being sent by his father incarnate to pay a price on a cross, to be crucified and for God to be so obsessed with you and I, yes, you and I in this room, that this was worth the sacrificing of his son. And that's the love that is modeled for us in the reality of the kingdom of God. I'm sorry to say, you don't get to define love. It's been defined for you in what was modeled through Christ on the cross. And anything that stands in opposition to that love, anything that seeks to undermine the foundational truth of Jesus incarnate being the baseline of truth is a lie from the enemy. Verse three says, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and now is already in this world. And so, as we've said, the enemy, the Antichrist, the devil, would love nothing more for than you to cease to acknowledge that Jesus is 
the Son of God. Because if he can convince you of this, he can convince you to deny the order and the reality of God's kingdom. And then this inevitably leads to a place where we begin manufacturing our own sort of truth and inevitably start to create our own moral reality, where we adopt the position of moral relativism. And let me, let me show you how this would work. It, we're really not that creative of people when we try and define our own morals. But I'm gonna use an example of my son because I love talking about him. He is uh, roughly two, I've told the old service he's two and a half, but I think I've been saying that for like four months, so he's probably more than two and a half. Um, but if, I, if he woke up one morning, I said, Wells, today you can eat whatever you want all day long. You can have it your way. And even if that means going to Burger King, which I will judge you. <laughs> Let me tell you exactly what he would eat. This is easy, I promise you. He would start with a blueberry muffin, probably cold, it's weird like that. And then for brunch, and since he's the son of millennial parents, brunch is basically like a given. That's just the fourth meal. He would have a, mm, probably a donut with chocolate icing and sprinkles. For lunch, honestly, <laughs> he'd probably just have like six different types of breads. Probably a hot dog bun. He's very into hot dog buns right now. It's strange, just a bun. Uh, and then for snack, he would popsicle for sure. Honestly, he'd probably eat some fruit too. He really does like fruit. And then for dinner, he would say, cut it all, just bring me the ice cream, right? And the reason he would eat this is because in his little two and a half year old brain, he doesn't understand that his body needs certain nutrients and certain nutrients are found in particular foods. He is just thinking through the lens of what will taste good? What will feel good? What is it that my flesh is craving, right? And in the same way, just as predictable as a toddler getting to pick his or her own diet for a day, so too would be our moral realities. We would simply define and order everything around what affirms and satisfies our cravings. We would filter everything through what brings me pleasure. If it feels good, it must be right. And if it feels bad, it must be wrong. That would be our new moral reality. And ultimately, the root of what the enemy is trying to do is to cause us to lose sight of what we know to be truth. And then, ultimately, weave in the lie that we can define our own moral reality. Because when we do that, sin ceases to be sin. We no longer see bad. We no longer see what is evil. We no longer see the difference between good and evil, and ultimately everything becomes the bleak color of just relative, of relativism. And then we too become like those who do not acknowledge Jesus. But I think there's also, don't worry, you're not off scouts free if you're not on the brink of lack of acknowledgement of Jesus, because there is kind of a Diet Coke version of this running around, sort of a light Version. And I think it particularly runs rampant through, through churches and through this part of the country. And it, it might just be on its own a, a whole other false sort of deceptive message. But it's this idea of a phrase that I, I honestly just made up, so don't try and Google it. There's literally nothing there. And it's called buffet relativism, right? And it, it suggests that we'll take the truths and the parts of the reality and the, of the kingdom of God that, that help and that are convenient and that we're comfortable with, and those that stretch us a little bit, those that we don't like following and abiding by as much, we'll just leave those on the buffet line. And so we'll fill up on exactly what satisfies us, taking enough and then leaving the rest right there 
for someone else. But the problem is with partial reality, it's not really reality. And neither is a partial truth is truth, right? And so this is why this is such a big deal. Look at verse four. You, dear children, are from God and have not overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Now, for us to overcome the world, like John just said, ultimately, we know that Jesus had to overcome the world first. And this is why John quickly reminds us that it's really God in us that has allowed us to overcome the world, right? And we know that Jesus overcame the world because as Ephesians 2, 4 says, God was so rich in mercy that he sent his son. We talked about this incarnation and he sent his son who lived a perfect life, died on the cross, buried, three days later, rose again, conquering death, conquering the grave and therefore overcoming the world. And then therefore, when we are born as a new creation, God is in us and God is greater than the world. But when we try and live by our own code, our own morals, our own definitions of right and wrong, even if it's just a little bit of sort of mixing and match, matching what we know to be the truth or reality with a little bit of the lies in the world, we are suggesting, it suggests that in us, we have not overcome the world. And then therefore, Jesus has not overcome the world. And of course, we know that's not true, but ultimately, we arrive at a lifestyle that says somewhere deep in our soul, we are not fully freed from the hopelessness of the world. And somewhere deep inside of us, we think that God's kingdom, God's order is good, but we need to add a little bit to it. We need to take away a few things. And so the kingdom of God for us becomes kind of like a buffet, taking a little bit of God's order, God's reality, God's truth, and then a little bit of what the world, what society says is okay. And you know what we end up with? A plate full of comfortable, comfortability and convenience, hot off the buffet line of relativism. And with this disposition, God has not fully overcome the world in your life, right? Because you have not fully overcome the world. Verse five says, they're from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. So let's make this simple because I'm, I'm confusing myself. Those in the false reality of the world live through and from the viewpoint of the world, right? And if you think about it, a lot of this sort of false spirit viewpoint of the world boils down to the enemy's first lie ever which was to Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3. They are told by God they can eat from any tree they want. There's like a jillion trees, but there's just one that they should not eat from, right? And then the serpent, the enemy comes in and the first lie ever seeps into humanity. And that lie is you actually don't have to be God or you don't have to listen to God, right? You can be your own God. You can eat and define whatever you want to be true. And so if God says don't eat from that tree, who is God to tell you what's right and wrong? And that's the first enemy, that's the first lie that the enemy tells us. And that ultimately is the viewpoint of the world. You can be your own God. Who is God to tell you what is right and what is wrong? And look, if the evil one can't convince the Christ follower of this sort of unreality, then those that he can convince, those that he can convince of the viewpoint of the world, he will also convince to silent 
the church into silent Christians. The enemy will weave into humanity a lie that suggests a narrative that says that Christ followers are antiquated, dated, unscientific, and just overall not cool bigots. And so, yeah, John says, they don't listen to us. And that's not that new, right? You know, if you think about it, really the, the, the history of the church has spent most of its time outside the center of culture influence. Now, in America, we have had the, the privilege of being right there in the middle of cultural influence. But really, as we get pushed further and further and further towards the margins of society, I feel like John is reminding us we should not be alarmed. If there's any people group that knows how to operate from the margins of society, it is the body of Christ. It is the church. And the reason we know that is because we know that the God who is in us, the God that we serve, has overcome the world. Verse six, we're almost done. Home stretch, I promise. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Notice where John says we're from. He says it twice in verse four and verse six. He says that we are from God, not from this world, but from him. And knowing God means that we know our origins. Your origins, your place is not one, is not one that is rooted in having to work and strive to get the attention and the affections from God. We don't have to strive anymore to have the attention, to have the love of God. But instead, since we are from him and we are with him, and because of his graciousness and his kindness in sending his son, we can have relationship with God. We can be from God, right? And here's the thing. Being from God, though, is not the freedom to do and to believe and to create our own moral reality, right? It's not the freedom to do whatever we want. And I think, and I'm, I said this in the early service, and I'm a little nervous to say it, because I don't want anyone to misunderstand what I'm talking about, but I, I just said that there's nothing we can do, right, to be in relationship with God, right? And grace by faith alone, it, that is the gospel. But I fear that sometimes we have moved so far in a direction of almost cheapening grace in a way that we forget that God and living in God's reality and God's kingdom does come with things that we are to do and not to do, okay? And, and we can say all day, it's, it's a relationship, not a religion. That phrase makes no sense. Uh, but in any relationship, it still comes with some ground rules, for lack of better words, right? And you might not talk about those. You might not have them all com neatly comprised in a book with 66 smaller books in it like we do the Bible. But all that to say is that we are not just freed because of the grace we experience through faith to do whatever we want, right? There are things that we are supposed to do. There are things we not, are not supposed to do. You can call them rules. If that word makes you uncomfortable, call it rhythms, right? But, but it, it, they're there. Like, that's scripture, right? Does that make sense to anyone? Okay, cool. If not, then um, email pastor at theheights.org and he'll clear it up. <laughs> but ultimately, ultimately, it's not a freedom to do whatever we want, but it is a freedom from the brokenness and the bondage of the world. And it's a freedom that welcomes us into the truth and the reality of the kingdom. And that kingdom has a real king 
right? And that king is Jesus, and he laid down his life. He conquered the grave. He overcame the world. And if we repent, believe, and follow, right, which means we follow the ways in which he has ordered, then we too can be part of his kingdom, and we too can live in that reality. So as we get ready to close, you know, for most of us, the water's inside our soul, so to speak, are a little murky, right? And the reality is we've probably believed some lies from the viewpoint of the world, and there's some truth, right? And, and we need to sort through kind of the junk that is swimming around inside us. Inside us. And I don't know if there's a better way to do that than to claim truth and rebuke lies, right? And so when you walk out, you'll see on these little tables at the back, these little sheets of paper, and they're just simply six questions that can sort of help you guide and discern what is truth and what lies need to be rebuked in your own life. And it's, it's questions like, you know, what lies am I believing? What does the truth of Jesus say about that lie? Is there any action that I should be called towards, right? And, and here's the beauty, you know, uh, John talks about in verse five and six about how those from God listen to us, right? And so Christians, right, we listen to each other. And in a way, that's the essence of what it means to be in community. And so I would encourage you as you sort of fill this sheet out, right? And I would do this often, right? This isn't just probably something you do like once a year, but every so often, every couple months or whatever. But as you do that, I would encourage you to find someone uh, that you trust, someone in your life group, someone in a discipleship group, uh, your spouse, your friend, and go through this sheet with them. Not so they can judge you, not so that you judge them, but simply for the purpose of sometimes it helps to invite our community in to join us in proclaiming truth and rebuking lies. You could say that's a lot of what community is. It's people you link arms with to proclaim truth and rebuke the lies of the world. And so uh, we hope, man, I hope that that helps you. I hope that that is something that can help you sort through that. And so let me just close with this question. Where do, you, where do you stand? Like, what do you believe? Do you believe the lie? Do you struggle to believe that God fully overcame the world? And as a result, you haven't overcome the world. And because of that, you live in this sort of fictitious reality that is fabricated and centered around lies from the enemy. Or do you stand on the side of truth? Have you been freed from the lies of the world? Have you been freed to attune your ear to God, to escape the viewpoint of the world. And as a result of that, you have ordered your life around the truth and the reality of the kingdom of God. So what is, what is your reality? What is your reality? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God of truth that you are the God who, uh, who, who has made known to us what truth is and that we ultimately find your gospel, the good news of your son to be the place in which all life flows forth. And Father, we thank you for the reality of your kingdom, Lord. And Father, as we get ready to go, Lord, I just pray that you would give each and every one of us the ability to discern what is true and what is a lie in our life, Lord, that you would give us the ability to rebuke the lies of the enemy and to proclaim truth in our own soul, Lord. And so, Father, we love you, and we pray this in your name. Amen.